So we're continuing with our series, The King in Jerusalem. And the focus is on the time that Jesus spent in Jerusalem uh, near, well, at the end of his life. Um, And uh, we're looking at everything from the triumphal entry, which we looked at last week, all the way through to his death and resurrection, which, of course, we'll come to at Easter. Uh, Throughout Matthew's Gospel, we uh, observe a growing unwillingness of the religious authorities to accept Jesus and his claims. And in this part of the gospel, it all comes to a head. And last week, we saw how Jesus was welcomed into Jerusalem as king. The crowds were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. On entering Jerusalem, Jesus uh, causes quite a commotion in the temple uh, by turning over the tables of those who had turned worship into a corrupt money-making enterprise. And he drove them all out of the temple. And then Jesus uh, welcomed the uh, blind and the lame, and he healed them. And he accepted praises from the little children who, when they saw Jesus in the temple, they got excited all over again, and they started shouting, Hosanna to the King of David, right there in the temple, um, much to the annoyance of the chief priests and the teachers of the law. So a lot happened in one day, after which Jesus went to Bethany, a little village. It's about three kilometers away from Jerusalem. It's still there today. And that is where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. So almost certainly Jesus stayed with them. And then the next day, Jesus returned to Jerusalem, and he came across a fig tree, which appeared to be in full bloom. Uh, it was, uh, uh, you know, it was covered in leaves but there was no fruit. So Jesus cursed the tree, and it withered up right there before the disciples' eyes. Now, it wasn't some random uh, event. It was a sign that reinforced Jesus' condemnation of the temple the day before. Uh, Israel had become corrupt. Their worship had become corrupt. Uh, And when we read the Old Testament, we we see that actually that's nothing new. But the the point is, Israel was bearing no good fruit, and the nation had come under God's judgment. So obviously the fig tree represented Israel and the temple worship in particular. Anyway, Jesus went into the temple courts, and he began to teach. And the chief priests and elders came to him and said, By what authority... Are you doing these things? In other words, who gave you permission to come waltzing into Jerusalem like some kind of conquering king? Who gave you permission to cause all this uh, chaos and wreak havoc in the temple? Who gave you permission to heal and to teach? Because that's what they meant by these things. And their question pushes Jesus into a corner. If Jesus claims that he's done these things by God's authority, they'll blame him or accuse him of blasphemy. Uh, If Jesus claims to have done these things by his own authority, they'll tell him to stop because their authority is greater than his, or so they think. And Jesus, as he so often did, he answered them with a question. He said, "I I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? 
So he puts the religious leaders in exactly the same position that they tried to put him in. If they say John's baptism was from heaven, Jesus will say, so why didn't you get baptized with it by him? Uh, why didn't you believe his message and follow the one to whom he pointed? Of course, John's message was one of repentance, and the religious leaders will not repent, and so they cannot believe. Repentance is a prerequisite to faith in Jesus. If they say John's baptism was of human origin, the crowd will be in uproar because it was widely held that John was a prophet. You remember he had quite a following, and he was beheaded by Herod Antipas um, and, uh, and martyred in the eyes of the people. So the religious leaders give a rather pathetic answer. They say, we don't know. And the implication is unavoidable. If they're not qualified to judge John the Baptist, they're certainly not qualified to judge Jesus. So Jesus doesn't answer their question. Rather, he tells them three parables uh, which reveal their lack of integrity and corruption, and uh, he effectively pronounces judgment upon them. And we're going to look at two of those parables this week, and then the third we'll look at next week. But before we get to that, we need to ask why were the religious leaders so opposed to Jesus? Of all people, they should have been the first to recognize Israel's long-awaited Messiah. They knew the scriptures in and out, inside out and backwards. They'd um, seen Jesus' miracles, how he uh, healed the sick, gave sight to the blind, and even raised the dead. I mean, surely that ought to have been enough for them to know that Jesus' authority came from above. But the religious leaders were proud and stubborn. Using the analogy of the fig tree, they were all leaves and no fruit. They liked to look and sound and act very religious and pious, but there was no love in their hearts, neither for God nor for the people. And we all know the, the two greatest commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. They did neither of those things, the opposite, in fact. Accepting Jesus would have meant repentance and a deep change at a personal level. A proud person can't repent because they won't admit that they were wrong. And the further we go in the wrong direction, the harder it is to uh, turn back. A few weeks ago, I walked the uh, Gold Coast Hinterland Great Walk over uh, a few days, and the walk is, is pretty straightforward. It's very well marked out. There's little signposts along the way. Um, so I didn't really need to get the map out, um, except that part of it has been blocked off for, to, uh, to renovate the path, and they've removed all the signs. So I just went straight past it and walked several kilometers in the wrong direction. Of course, eventually I realized, I thought, uh, no, this isn't right. So I got the map out, checked where I was. I thought, oh, no, I've got to walk back the way that I've come. Now, nobody likes being wrong. But imagine in that situation, if despite seeing all the clues, you know, the terrain, the gradient, the direction, the features, in spite of all that, I just kept plowing on in the wrong direction. I was like, yeah, I've come this far. I'm just going to keep going. I mean, that would be the height of foolishness, and I would never have reached my destination. In fact, I'd probably still be wandering around in Lamington National Park. 
But a lot of people do exactly that in life. They effectively spend their whole lives walking away from God. And even when they see lots of clues and evidence that they got it wrong, their pride will not allow them to change direction. Repentance. Turning around and going back the other way. It takes humility. You have to admit that you were wrong. And this was the problem with the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Not all of them, but most of them. They couldn't admit that they were wrong. They simply could not bring themselves to repent in spite of all the evidence, in spite of everything that Jesus said and did. They were highly respected pillars of the community. The stakes were too high. They couldn't put their hand up and say, actually, we've got it wrong. And pride still keeps many from entering God's kingdom today. So back to Jesus' parables. The first one is the parable of the two sons. A man tells his sons to go and work in the vineyard. And the first one says no. But then he thinks better of it and he changes his mind and he goes and he does the work. The second son agrees to work, but then he doesn't do it. Actually, anyone who is vaguely familiar with children will realize that this could easily be the parable of the one son on two different days. Anyway is the parable of the two sons. And Jesus asks, which of the two did what his father wanted? And the religious leaders can only answer that it was the first son, the one who eventually went to work. He's the one that did his father's will. So now Jesus reveals the meaning of the parable. He says to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. That's awkward. That is awkward. Jesus is telling the most highly respected members of society, the nation's religious leaders, that tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of them. You can imagine Jesus' disciples going, the religious leaders are like the second son. They say they serve God, but they don't. They're doing the opposite. The tax collectors and the prostitutes, they're like the first son. Uh, They started by rebelling against God, but then they changed their minds. They repented, and they submitted their lives to their father's will. The truth can be offensive in all kinds of situations, and hearing the truth spoken can actually be very uncomfortable to everyone present. I was once sat with a little group of backpackers in a hostel in Rio, and there was one guy who was uh, monopolizing the the, uh, conversation, and he kept telling the most outrageous and ridiculous and demonstrably false stories. And he wasn't joking. He he was lying to impress the group of people that he was with. And I wasn't as tactful then as I am now. And eventually I said, just stop lying. You're insulting us, and it's an embarrassment to you. Just stop it. And kind of everyone around the table went... (laughs) a little bit of nervous laughter it was very awkward now I didn't do that out of love I didn't do that out of love and so I don't think it was the right thing to do but Jesus always spoke in love 
and even when, he, even when he was very direct and likely to cause offence. And sometimes we do need to be direct with people, but we're not as discerning as Jesus. And so we really need to think and pray about how and when to do that. Although Jesus was telling the religious leaders that they were resisting God, which was bound to anger them, he also made it clear that God will receive anyone into his kingdom who truly repents, no matter how late in the day. Anyone, tax collectors, prostitutes, even then, even those religious leaders. Notice Jesus didn't say, you're permanently excluded from God's kingdom. He said the tax collectors and prostitutes were entering ahead of them. If they repent, there's still a place in God's kingdom for them. Sadly, most of them didn't repent, but some did. Next, we have the parable of the tenants, and again, it features a vineyard. In the Old Testament, uh, the nation of Israel is often compared to a vineyard. And it's normally the case that the vineyard illustration points to the fact that Israel is uh, corrupt and degenerate, like a vineyard that's producing no good fruit. So in this parable, God is the landowner who planted the vineyard, his people, Israel. The farmers to whom he rented it out are the nation's leaders, the religious leaders who are supposed to be tending and caring for the vineyard. They were supposed to be looking after God's people, bringing them closer to God. And the messengers or servants, the ones sent to the vineyard on the landowner's behalf, represent the long line of prophets through whom God called his people to repentance. And we know from the Old Testament that those prophets were normally not listened to. They are often persecuted. They are sometimes even killed. And of course, the landowner's son is Jesus, who anticipates the ultimate response of Israel's leaders to him. He knows full well they're going to have him killed. He's not taken outside the vineyard. He's taken outside of Jerusalem, crucified. One of the amazing things about this parable is that Jesus asked the religious leaders, he, he says, what's going to happen to these tenants who have beaten and killed and stoned the landowner's servants and even killed his own son? And there is only one answer they can give. And in so doing, they pronounce judgment on themselves. They say he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. So who are the other tenants? Well, they're the Gentiles, the non-Jews, to whom God's kingdom is now being offered. Of course, the, the, the Jews are still welcome into God's kingdom. All of the first Christians were Jewish. But the floodgates have now opened to the non-Jews, the Gentiles too. doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile. If you repent and turn back to God, he will receive you into his kingdom. And that punchline was effectively delivered by the religious leaders themselves when they answered Jesus' question about the parable. It's very clever. There's really no other way that they could have answered that. And then Jesus says to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. The cornerstone in building terms was the first stone set 
in the construction of the foundation. All the other stones would be set or laid in reference to this one stone. So the cornerstone would determine the position of the entire structure. Jesus is that cornerstone that the builders have rejected. The builders, of course, are those religious leaders. They rejected Jesus when in reality he was the cornerstone, the foundation of God's kingdom. You can't be part of God's kingdom if you reject Jesus. Those who fall on the stone are those who can't accept a humble saviour who is poor and lowly, a saviour who died the death of a criminal in our place. And ultimately, those who reject Jesus will come under the crushing weight of his judgment. When Jesus talked about the cornerstone, you probably noticed he was quoting Psalm 118, verses 22 to 23. We read those as part of our first reading. And that psalm was sung at all the major festivals. And so nobody who heard Jesus that day could ever forget his teaching because they'd keep hearing that psalm. And every time they heard that psalm, they'd remember what Jesus had said. And the religious leaders knew perfectly well that everything Jesus was saying was directed at them. And from that point on, they were determined to have him arrested and killed. And we're going to see how that transpired over the coming weeks. But there's a message and a warning here for us, isn't there? There's a message and a warning for us. We don't want to be that fig tree that was all leaves and no fruit. We don't want to be the son who says, sure, dad, I'll go and work for you, and then gets distracted and goes off and does other things. We don't want to be like those tenant farmers who were given the awesome responsibility of tending and caring for this vineyard and then messed it up, remembering that we have the awesome responsibility of building God's kingdom here in Springfield and further afield. And we don't want to be like the proud, hard-hearted, stubborn religious leaders who refuse to recognize their own sin and turn from it. They also failed to see what God was doing and join in with it. That's why Jesus referred to them as blind guides. They were blind. They couldn't see what God was doing. Let us be a people who are producing fruit in keeping with repentance. Let us be a people who are producing fruit in keeping with God's kingdom and doing what it is that God has called us to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us the awesome responsibility of joining in with your work in the world. And we pray that our focus will be on you and your kingdom, that we will see what your spirit is doing and have a heartfelt desire to join in with it and the perseverance and the discipline and the determination and the passion to, to, to keep going with that, to keep going with the work that you've given us to do. Father, help us to seek opportunities to serve you. Father, we love you and we pray that you will help us in all of this. Help us to be your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.